You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So, uh, John is not really a nativity scene kind of guy. And he's pretty adamant, in case you haven't noticed, he's pretty adamant that you and I understand that Advent does not begin in a stable in Bethlehem. Advent begins in a garden. And as the Bible tells us, God through his word, Jesus Christ, he created all things. And in this good creation, things were as they should be. There was peace, there was joy, there was harmony, there was relational wholeness, there was spiritual life. Life was teeming, like in our, uh, unlike our world, how things are sort of self-destructing and breaking down and wearing down. In this garden, in this world, things were all, the future was always bright. Life was always teeming with possibility. But... As the Bible also tells us, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good instructions, this good creation was then plunged into darkness. Fear, hurt, shame, blame, separation, war, strife, death, all of it came flooding into the human experience. There was light and life, and then there was darkness. But as Genesis 3 records, God made a beautiful promise to humanity and to the serpent that was present. And the promise was that darkness wouldn't prevail. That one day a savior born of woman would come and defeat evil and deliver God's people. And the promise was that this son would crush the head of the serpent, and in the midst of this process, the serpent would strike the son's heel, which gives us this clue that victory would come through suffering, but the son would prevail. Now, this is the backdrop that John is assuming that we understand when he states this term, the world. The world doesn't just refer to the globe and the earth in general, but What he means is the created order that exists on this earth that has been broken and disjointed by human rebellion. A world that is darkened, a world that is in desperate need of saving. Our world, my world, your world. Now, almost a decade ago, uh, my family and I lived at a house in a house just right across from the old Scottish Rite Center. And right across the street from us was this uh, sweet little lady that lived by herself, and she had 
this beautiful, spotless, old school Mercedes coupe. And when she would, she, it was the kind of car that, you know, she took to church and to the grocery store. I mean, it was just cherry. It was beautiful. And that thing would just come slowly purring around the corner and slowly up into the driveway. But one day I'm outside uh, with another neighbor who lived just to the right side of me, gentlemen. And we, we, this car was an eye turner. So we turn and we see this car slowly creeping around the corner. And then out of nowhere... This car guns it into the house. Apparently, this older woman had a a temporary lapse of consciousness. And so what she did, she went screaming onto the driveway, uh, clipped the corner of the driveway awning, clipped the corner of the garage, went through the garage doors, into the garage, into the back of the garage, and she was there stuck uh, with the accelerator on. And so at this moment, the car is against the back of the garage door. It's the accelerator still on, so it's sort of bouncing about. Smoke is filled now the garage door. And I'll never forget this moment. It probably felt like a million years, but it was just probably a split second where I just froze. We just froze. We're just standing there looking at this just wreckage of what happened. And I'll never forget, it was probably one of the most compelling moments of my life. This, older, this, this man who was older than me, who was probably in his 60s at the time, without hesitation, just darts across the street and like Dukes of Hazard style, slides over the back of the car and just disappears into the smoke. And again, I was compelled to respond. So I did what anyone else would do. I took out my phone and started filming. Uh, No, I didn't. So I was, um, no, the honest truth is I had more pride than that and to allow this older guy to to do what I couldn't. So I just take off after him and we jump into the smoke. And we were able to actually pull that lady from the car and together we were able to uh, potentially save this woman's life. This was probably going to be the end of, of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saving lives around here. No big deal, guys. You guys totally underappreciate. You're going you're gonna to thank me one day when I'm jumping into your garage for you. And, yeah, thank you. So this story has a point, I promise, and it is to illustrate that the incarnation is not just a feel-good story. This is not just a heartwarming story of an infant cooing, this cute cooing baby with these little animals coming to look in and just see the sweet little baby Jesus. This is a soul-gripping story of Jesus' unflinching sprint into the darkness for the sake of rescuing humanity. When John says the true light came into the world, this is not a cute picture. This is a picture of God in flesh taking a a sacrificial leap into the wreckage of our lives at the cost of his own life in order to rescue us out. And what John focuses on here this morning in the passage that we're looking at is our response to that rescue. Responses to the true light coming into the world. And what John does is he actually begins with the negative response, with the response of 
rejection. If you're taking notes, the first point is this, rejecting Jesus. Now, could you, could you imagine uh, this neighbor and I running into this woman's garage, jumping in into the smoke, risking our lives, and then her looking up at us and saying, oh, no thanks, I, I've got it from here. If that is almost unimaginable, we need to be reminded of what John is explaining here because that's actually exactly what John is explaining. Look at me in verses 10 through 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There are those who refuse to receive the healing light of God. That, that's what John is indicating here. But what we need to remember is that for those who remain in darkness, it's not because there was no light afforded to them. There was no light to be found for them. It's actually simply because they prefer to remain in the darkness, because they rejected God's gracious offer of light and deliverance. The light that came for everyone. I'm reminded of a scene from the beginning of the first Incredibles movie. So as you remember the movie Incredibles, uh, Mr. Incredible was, was a hero. The, the story begins with everyone loving these heroes. But one night, he looks up and he sees a man that's plummeting to his death. And so Mr. Incredible jumps, he leaps to catch him, and as he grasps him, he breaks through a building, and in the process of saving this man's life, the man is injured. And a little bit later, there's this sort of uh, uh, newspaper reel sort of scene, and it says, like, in a stunning turn of events, a Mr. Incredible is sued for saving someone who apparently didn't want to be saved. And then it pans to this press conference moment, and the lawyer that's representing this man is speaking, and he says, Mr. Sansweet didn't want to be saved. Mr. Sansweet didn't ask to be saved. The injuries received by Mr. Incredible's actions, so-called, cause him daily pain. And so the Mr. Incredible yells, he's like, I saved your life. And so there, Mr. Sansweet with the, with the neck brace yells out, he says, you didn't save my life, you ruined my what? My death. You didn't save my life, you ruined my death. When Jesus breaks into the world, it's not pretty. This is not a pretty sight when Jesus breaks into our world, it's not comfortable, it's intrusive, it's invasive, it's sometimes painful. And what we need to remember is that the discomfort of Jesus' appearance is based on the nature of his rescue. Because without the intervention of God, we are in that plunge to our own destruction. You may have your life put together, you may have shown up today with a collared shirt and in your Sunday's best and you're at church and you're participating and you're able to keep your job and you're able to keep a family. But apart from the intervention of God, we too are on that spiritual tailspin plummeting to our own spiritual demise without the intervention of God. And at the end of the day, if we push Jesus away, if we push his rescue away, it's not because he's not good. It's not because he's uncaring. It's not because Jesus is unloving. It's because we don't like him ruining our death. 
And maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling the discomfort of Jesus ruining your death. John describes the human condition. See, sin isn't just the bad, naughty things that we do. What John is describing here is that the sin beneath our sins, the root of all of our sins, the root of all of our immorality, is ultimately a rejection of God. Let me put it this way. Before sin is a moral issue, sin is a relational issue. It's a relational breaking. It's us telling God through our thoughts, through our motivations, through our actions and our behaviors, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need your leadership. I don't need your help. I don't need your family. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need your saving. I don't need you. And there are a number of ways that we we do this. There's the more obvious way that we express that pushing Jesus away through our rebellion. The things that we do where we're just running from God. We don't want anything to do with God. Maybe you're in that place today. But there's another more subtle way that we can do this. And I think that this actually may be more relevant for those who are in church today. We can also push God away and say, I don't need you through our religion. Through our attendance through our singing, through our giving, through our serving. When we convince ourselves that we can make ourselves acceptable to God apart from God, we can clean ourselves up, that we can make ourselves approvable, that we can make something of ourselves apart from the intervention and help of God. We can do this through our rebellion, and we can also do this through our religion. God, I don't need you. Now listen to these words of God found in Isaiah 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. God reaches out his hands to his people, and they say, no thanks. We got it from here. Here's the the most unsettling part of this whole Christ incarnate birth narrative thing. As John tells us, his own people did not receive him. And so John is no longer talking about the world in general. He's no longer talking about people in general. He is talking about God's people. Those who knew God's law, those who were recipients of God's promises, those who were uh, legitimately a part of God's family. The picture here is that Jesus entered his own house and he wasn't welcome. Christ came incarnate and his people changed the locks. And so what does Jesus do? He does what Jesus does and he went and made his home among those who didn't belong. He stepped outside of the so-called family to welcome strangers to welcome those who wouldn't reject him, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. 
he made his home among sinners. And what this tells us is that the ones that are in the greatest danger of rejecting Jesus this Christmas, it's not the world in general. It's not the the, the checker uh, at the grocery store that says, Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. It's his church. It's us. If I'm reading this correctly, we are the ones in most danger of rejecting Jesus this Christmas. It's those of us who fail to recognize our ongoing need for God's grace in our lives. It's those of us who are so familiar with the Christmas story that we fail to see our ongoing need to respond to his grace in faith and faithfulness. It's those of us who forget that to be apathetic and indifferent towards God is actually a form of rejection. A non-response is a response. In Revelation 3, Jesus writes these letters to the churches, and the final church in Laodicea receives these words from Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now think about this. Of all places where we should find Jesus, it would be in the church. But here's Jesus standing outside the church, knocking. They changed the locks on him. But John shows us There are those, and it is often a remnant, so remain encouraged. It's not typically the majority, but a minority, a small minority, that do, in fact, receive him. Second point is this, receiving Jesus. Look at me in verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, uh, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, if sin can be simply described as a rejection of Jesus and his work, then salvation can simply be described as receiving Jesus' work. Sin is pushing away what Jesus has done for us. Salvation is receiving it. And what John tells us here is this issue of salvation is not a matter of blood or the will, meaning it doesn't have to do with what family you were born into or where you were born. It's not uh, a matter of the will of the flesh, which means it's not ultimately based on a human decision. It's not even based on your determination to be a part, your determination to love God, your determination to belong to his family. What John is describing is that this gift of salvation is a gift of grace from God to be received by faith. Can I get an amen? That's the core of the gospel. If you're not amen for that, you won't amen for anything else. A gift of God's grace. What is grace? Unmerited, demerited favor offered to us to be received by faith. And I love this word that John uses here for receive. Receive isn't just intellectual agreement. This is not just the man or woman saying, okay, I can get behind this. I can reason with this. I can wrap my mind around this concept, this, this, this theory. It's not intellectual assent. 
It's far less abstract than thinking right thoughts about God. To receive is a word that means to lay hold of something or to apprehend something. And so, again, John is sort of taking all of our Christmas sentiments and ruining them for us. And what he's showing us is that Jesus is not a cute baby to be coddled. Jesus is a fierce rescuer to be apprehended, to lay a hold of. Like Jacob wrestling the angel in the middle of the night, I am laying hold, I am holding on until you bless me. It's far more fierce. It's far less gentle. Yes, the Advent journey uh, takes us through Bethlehem, but it doesn't stop there. The Advent journey takes us through Bethlehem, through the life of Jesus, and ultimately leads us up a hill called Calvary to the cross, which is the place of our redemption and our healing. In grace, Jesus leaped into the night to catch us in our plunge to death. And in faith, we respond by holding tight to him. Faith is clinging to Jesus as Jesus clings to us. Now, I'm reminded of a story in history uh, of a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin spent a lot of time walking across these various tightropes suspended over uh, Niagara Falls in the 1800s. And so at one point, he addressed this huge crowd that had gathered. He had many fans that would show up and watch him do this. And he, he turns to the crowd, a little you know, crowd interaction, and he says, he asks them whether or not they believed that he could walk across the tightrope with a person on his back. And so the crowd just, just goes wild. Yes, of course, they start cheering. So naturally, he asks for a volunteer. <laughs> the crowd gets quiet. They're less confident at this point. In fact, no one volunteers. Which, by the way, this again is the difference between intellectual agreement and trust. So, unfortunately, the privilege fell to his manager. And the manager was terrified. I mean, he, he had seen Blondin do all sorts of things, like pushing wheelbarrows, setting up like a little uh, table with tea, all sorts of things. But when it comes time, push comes to shove, he's terrified. But Blondin is as confident as other. He's a competent tightrope walker. And so as they begin to walk the tightrope, 15 stories above the bottom of Niagara Falls, the manager, as you can imagine, is clinging to Blondin for his life. And again, Blondin was a competent walker, and he knew what he was doing. But as much as the manager was confident in this man's abilities, I mean, his livelihood was resting on this guy continuing to do what he does successfully without dying, this theory was being tested in this moment. And the truth was that this, this theory was really tested when this large gust of wind came blowing over the Niagara Falls. And it, it forced Blondin, who was in charge of the balance, to shift his weight. And so feeling that, that, that occurring underneath him, the manager who's on his back naturally leaned his weight the other way to sort of counterbalance. If you've ever sat on the backside of a motorcycle, you know that feeling and that sort of natural inclination to move in the opposite direction. And this happens over and over again so that 
Blondin gets furious, and he stops the show right in the middle of the tightrope, 15 stories over the bottom of Niagara Falls, and he yells over the roaring waterfall to the man on his back. He says, stop! I don't need your help. And if you want to live today, then you simply need to cling to me. His attempts at saving himself were only serving to endanger him more. And this is really the essence of faith. Jesus does not need your counterbalancing. Jesus does not need your help. Jesus is not meeting you in the middle. Jesus is not helping those who help themselves. He says, simply cling to me. Receive me. Receive my work at the cross. Receive my grace. Receive my light. Receive my life. If you want to live, then you simply need to cling to me. We see rejecting Jesus. We see receiving Jesus. Third and finally, Responding to Jesus. This is the point where I ask you, so how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Because whether this is the first time you've heard the Christmas message or the 50th, there is a call to respond. Advent is a season of preparation. And as you've probably found thus far, and, and probably it's become very apparent today, Advent can sort of feel at odds with the lively sort of typical holiday spirit. And it can make things feel pretty uncomfortable when you simply desire to cruise through December simply appreciating another Christmas season. When, when you are just content with warm feelings, with just being kind of warmed again with all the memories of, of Christmas. Friend, what John is showing us, and what I need to remind you of this morning, is that Jesus didn't come to simply be appreciated. Jesus didn't come to just give you warm feelings this Christmas. The true light that comes into the world demands a response. Demands a response. And the question today, it's, it hasn't made it easier, but it's made it simple. Will you reject him or will you receive him? And if I'm reading this correctly and I read the scriptures correctly, we really only have two options. Again, it doesn't make it easier, but it does make it simple. Will you receive him or will you reject him? This Christmas, the, the question that must trouble you until you too answer is this, and it's in the words of St. Augustine. He asked, what does it avail me that this birth, speaking of Jesus' birth, has simply happened if it does not happen in me? That it should happen in me is what matters. Consider that question. What does it avail me if this birth just simply happened if it doesn't happen in me? In other words, what value is the Christmas story if it doesn't radically transform our lives, if it doesn't bring change into our everyday experience, Jesus said later in John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
unless one is born again, unless this birth happens in us. And what John tells us is that for those who receive Jesus by faith, not meeting Jesus in the middle, not counterbalancing Jesus, clinging to Jesus, that for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, God has given them the right to become his very own children. God has given them the right to be born again into God's family. This is the true Christmas miracle. This is the Christmas miracle. The, the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ was just the beginning. It was just the beginning of many miraculous births to come today. This is what I want to open our eyes to see and to receive today. Today, Jesus is birthing something new in his people. Christ is coming into our midst once again. Jesus is breaking open the status quo. Jesus is bringing life where there's death. Jesus is bringing healing where there's brokenness. Will you receive this new life breaking through? Will you receive him? Or will you reject him? Will you receive him? Or will you reject him? Let's pray.